Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to the Versus Stars podcast. All my loyal listeners, thank you for your continued support. And remember, click that subscribe button, everybody. It's an amazing episode because Dan Dedeo boards the mothership. You know him as the publisher of Frank Miller Presents. He is now the writer of Hide or Seek. Come on board as we go traversing the stars. Hello, Mr. Dedeo. Thank you so much for coming to the Versus Stars podcast. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. It's an absolute honor to talk with you. It's, this has been one of the big goals of mine to have you on the show, and it finally happened. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you set such a low bar, but I'll, I'll try to help you out as much as I can. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I actually saw you, I think, at a... Were you ever at Trificon? Uh, yes, I was last year. Yes, last I'm, year. I was there, and I'm pretty sure I saw you in the line. I was looking over uh, to my wife. I was like, I think that's the end of the deal. I think it's the end of the deal. And I was going to say hi to you. But I was like, you know what? Don't be cool. Just stand here quietly. I, I probably would have ignored you anyway. Don't worry. It's okay. <laughs> as you should. <laughs> Your wife would be nice to it, but that's okay. <laughs> Once again, as you should. <laughs> She's scarier than I am. <laughs> So I always start off with a question of inspiration. So what inspired your love of comics and who your earliest influences? Oh, you know what? Um, you know, I've liked, I've, I've loved comics for a long time, you know, and it, it's funny. People always ask me, when did you first start reading comics? What got you involved in it? And it's, it's, a, it's on a slow burn, you know, it's a slow burn, you know, as a kid, you know, I, I, I love the 80 page giants with Superman and Batman, which everybody did, you know, we used to just, just like everybody, we stole them from the, from the barbershop when we used to go to barbershops, um, you know, but I was also a fan of the Adam West uh, Batman show and the Saturday morning Spider-Man show, which was my real favorite. And probably one of my first comics and my first best recollection of comics was uh, Spider-Man 40, uh, Spidey Saves the Day, um, this great shot because I love the Green Goblin and there's Spider-Man Green Goblin. So I love that. Then as time went on, you know, I, you know, my, my sister used to collect things. Uh, she was, had famous monsters of film land. Uh, my brother had creepy and eerie. And then I gravitated to things like House of Secrets, House of Mystery, you know, uh, where monsters dwell and all the horror comics. And then from there, slowly got into superheroes through Zemu the Titan and uh, and Swamp Thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I think is the most fa fascinating, and I think it's true almost every comic book um, reader, is that they remember like their first comic book. So like, you're like Spider-Man 40, people like they remember, it's, it's in your memory, just like sears a whole, like a whole there forever. Oh, I, I used to do panels on Sunday and I used to call the Sunday conversation with the fans at the at conventions. And I used to do that because I figured if you're here on a Sunday morning, you got to be a super diehard. And that was one of the things that I used to ask people. And you're right. Everybody, you, you talk about that first comic, you remember that number. Um, I don't remember the buying. A lot of people remember where they bought it. Uh, but I certainly remember that number. And more importantly, still have the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i was so excited i had a, a, the issue of mine was a, just, in the just league of america that was a jerry conway did it and yeah. i just remember these panels with um red tornado flying towards i think oh, it was a helicopter i was like that image has just been in my head forever and i just been like kept going back to in comic books forever I yeah think. yeah I, image. You, you you can remember those things page by page in some places because you, you read them over and over again when you first got them you know mm. so you're now writing is it your first prose novel called hide or seek yeah, it's my first prose novel. What happened was once I got out of D.C., you know, and I was looking for things to do during the pandemic, um, I actually um, had a pitch uh, set up with Netflix um, for a superhero project, which they solicited through a producer friend of mine. And I reached out to um, uh, to Kenneth Ruckford. Kenneth and I worked on the visuals. Kenneth worked on the visuals. I had the story. We pulled the whole project together. Um, I went to go to pitch it. Uh, to Netflix. We turned it around in like three weeks time, went to go to pitch it. And it was the day after Jupiter's Legacy was canceled. 
Um, and they sort of lost their interest in superhero product, you know, mm-hmm. and in the middle of the pitch, I was about to pitch a superhero book, as I like to tell them, tell the story. And they asked me if I had any projects on motocross, you know, kids and motorcycles <laughs> on the beach and beach parties. And I'm like, that wasn't exactly my property. Um, but ultimately, you know, as the pandemic, dro- you know, dragged on, um, I was able to get a book agent. My book agent set me up with a with a publisher and uh, they asked me if I had any projects. And this book was still always in my mind. I had the full story worked out. Um, and ultimately, I pitched the story to him. He loved the idea as a book and we were off to the races. Um, then I, I was able to bring a couple of writers in just to help me structure it. Cause I never did prose before. Mm. Um, it's a different pacing that you do in comics, completely different pacing. So I had a couple of people help me lay it out. And then I went in and just put the story on top. Um, and it was, it was, it was an experience. I have to say it was a lot of work, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I, I was very lucky to have a really smart, great editor on the book. Um, and I can't, you know, I, and I, I can't talk about, how important the editor's role is, especially in prose, because um, that's a really thankless job. I thought comics were bad. Uh, <laughs> but with prose, I mean, you're really helping form a book and really putting, not just just the helping you structure your voice, but also bringing a consistent tone throughout the book so it reads smooth, so you're not mm-hmm. all over the place with the, with tenses and direction and focus. Um, and, you know, I, I, I can't thank the, the editor enough to really help me pull it all together, because that's ultimately when the book uh, came alive um, after their first pass. You know, I mean, you're such a veteran in comic books. Was it scary to move over to prose and being and almost be a novice in another form of writing for the first time in who knows how many years? Yeah, you know what? It was it was interesting because I should have known better, you know. But it was one of the, you know, it's one of those things. And I, I've been fortunate on or or just ridiculous if it depends on how you look at it. I started in animation and I was writing animation without ever really writing animation. I sort of just you know, sort of picked it picked it up from what I read and, and adapted into my own material. Uh, same thing with comics. I sort of knew, you know, you know the structure and beats of the comic, but when you try to break it down and try to pace it yourself, you, you're learning a, a new style of storytelling. Same thing here. It's a new style of storytelling. Probably the most difficult of the bunch because it, this is a marathon mm. as compared to things where are just more like little sprints, you know, when you're <laughs> talking about a half-hour TV show or a 32-page or a comic, you know? Now, now, when you're writing a comic book, a lot of it has to do with, you know, how you end a certain page, you know, sort of turnover, you know, end of cliffhanger, end of cliffhanger. When you're writing a novel, how much of the thoughts on, on how you approach comic book bled over to how you approach the prose? Uh, you, you had to change it. You had to change it because ultimately, when you're writing a book, the chapters are thoughts. I looked at it as individual thoughts and ideas mm-hmm. and more concise. So it's 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 a beat more so than even a scene uh, in some ways. And, and, a, and I... And I, I'm always a little more phonetic when I when I'm writing because I like to move the shots and scenes, and I don't like to dwell on something too long. Same problem with comics. I have not as bad as Michael Bay in movies, but certainly uh, certainly has to be addressed someplace in my life. But I like to keep it moving and keeping it keep it keep the story flowing um, to make sure the energy is in the way. Hide or seek is told. It's told from the point of view of the boy uh, Nick Pappas, who takes on the identity of. Theo Alexander, when him and his mother are thrown into witness protection. And ultimately, you're discovering the world with them. So everything he's seeing for the first time, the readers are seeing for the first time. So you're literally on the journey with him. And and I think that's what's important because it keeps the mystery alive constantly because he's he's always trying to figure out what's happening in front of him, trying to analyze how to manage the situation with the limited information he has, and you're making those decisions with him. Um, I think that's what keeps the the book moving in, a, in an exciting manner. 
Now, in the solicits, um, Anthony Mar uh, Moranville is credited as doing the cover art and also as the artist. So how does that factor in? Is there art then within the prose? No, no, no. They, that actually, the, the solicits probably are wrong then. Uh, Anthony Chris, Anthony Marinville and Chris Silvestri are the writers that helped me lay out the story. The, all the art is is actually uh, created and and actually owned uh, by Kenneth Rockford, uh, who is my partner on uh, on Sideways and someone that I, I can't speak highly enough. He, he lent himself uh, to my project, um, which was wonderful and really helped bring in some personality. And hopefully someday if we get this anywhere else, um, he'd be the, a partner on the book, going, partner on the project moving forward too, which is great. So you know? the solicits were wrong. I read the, the wrong thing. That's okay. <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting to me because... Um, you know, we know the the rhythm of certain things, and and it's some of the stuff was picked up wrong. But no, this again, the the book itself is, is you know, I wrote the book, and and uh, Kenneth did the art for the just for the covers. There's no art on the interior at all. You know, and and it's funny you said that because people ask me, you're going to put pictures in the book. I said no, it's this is a prose book. I, said, <laughs> I, I needed that clear separation. Mm -hmm. uh, between using the art to tell the story and just letting the story tell the story. And I had to work those muscles to make sure I was telling the story properly because if I, 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 I was afraid that if I fell back on any art, even at the, mm -hmm. even as a chapter start, um, I think it would have young down the, the sensibilities of the book a little bit, but also um, it might force me not to be as descriptive or mm -hmm. really get ourselves explaining what the story's about and leaning on the art to do the explanation. And I felt in this case, as a prose novel, the words have to explain the situations and 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 what's happening in, in the story itself, you know? Yeah, it's funny. Like I said, when I was reading the solicit, I saw the art by Anthony Moranville, uh, other than the cover. I was, I was looking, I was like, I kept going back like, wait, graphic novel or prose? I kept seeing prose no, and no, art. I, and exactly, I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, 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 wherever that is, that's wrong. So I've got to make sure they correct that <laughs> wherever you saw. Um, um, and, I'll check it. I'll get back to you on <laughs> Please do. Yeah, I'm serious about that, too. The other thing, too, is that Anthony and Chris are also people that I work with on Frank Miller Presents Comics. And they're the writers on the Pandora book working with Frank, too. So we had such a strong relationship here. I, I, I wanted to find ways to help help them get out on another product. And they're out there on uh, on uh, Pandora uh, working with Frank and Emma Kubert, you know. So am I right? The age group is between 10 and 13. I think I'd rather that yeah, on Amazon. Yeah, I, that's pretty much, you know, it's, it's weird about that. It's, you know, because you know, there's a lot of conversation that goes into what the age group and classifications, because these things are really sliced pretty thin and depending upon subject matter and personality really helps determine what the sensibilities are. You know, I grew up on, on Marvel comics in the seventies, which uh, basically, you know, felt they were a little bit older, but weren't. And I worked in Saturday morning television for quite a number of years and there's a certain sensibility and rhythm to the types of story you tell there. Um, and probably the more I thought about it, the less comfortable I felt pushing myself out of that comfort zone. That's where I feel um, I told my stories best and I felt more comfortable telling that type of tale. You know, but it's, it's one of those things that could be read a little bit older, could be read a little bit younger. But if, if you have to give a distinction, it is, you know, 10 to 13 or so. Now, um, in the story, the protagonist, um, his father gets murdered. Is that a difficult subject to write within that age group? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that, first of all, you don't show a murder or describe it, right? It's more what I really describe is the reactions to that moment. Um, and I think that's more impactful at the end of the day. Um, you know, the story opens up with the father and son, and you can see them having a strained relationship there, you know, because he's basically, for all intents and purposes, an FTNC father, always at work. Um, it's not until his death that he, the son realizes that his father was that hero that just died. He hears about the hero's death first. It doesn't matter to him. 
then him and his mother get swept away into witness protection. And it's not until that point that he starts to put the pieces together and realize that the, the hero that died is actually his father. And that's the reason why uh, they're being spirited away to this, this uh, strange little town. Now, um, I, I know I don't want to give any spoilers away, but um, obviously there's some cons there's some thought, you know, every kid has it when their father is sort of absentee, not around working all the time. You know, there's a little bit of anger there. But when he finds out what his father does, that he was a superhero, so that changed the perception of his dad and what he was doing? Uh, it doesn't change his... Uh, it, it, it makes him start to think about past moments with his father. And there's moments where he has these fond memories that get taken apart because the father leaves in the middle of a scene or something happens and he starts to put the pieces together mm -hmm. and he starts to understand it better. The more interesting story that takes place is his relationship with his mother, which he, mm -hmm. he leaned on very heavily. And now all of a sudden starting to see her in a different light because of the, the fact that she's been lying to him about what his father did mm -hmm. his life. So <laughs> it, it, that, that, that puts a strain on a relationship. And when you move to a town under an assumed name, the only person you can rely on is the person you moved with. So you have this strained relationship and the only person you can trust, and he doesn't know what to trust, what to believe at that point. Mm. Now, in, in the story, he finds himself in a witness protection program, uh, which is a which is a whole town full of family members of the super of supervillains, right? Yeah, Are exactly. these the, the family members of the supervillains that his father was fighting? Uh, yeah, exactly. And what you find out that there's this real split uh, in the world, which is a big part of the story. There's a big split in the world. There are there are heroes and villains, um, and ultimately, it's it's something that's happening around society, not in the middle of society. So whenever they do make an appearance, it's a big and a dramatic moment. Um, and some of them appear, and some of them disappear. You never really know what's happening to them. But when he gets to the town, as he starts to meet people and become friends, um, he accepts them for what he what they are when he first meets them, and then ultimately. He starts to learn more about them and then his perception starts to change and he's not sure what to believe the person who he's become friends with or the history behind the people. Mm. Now, because there are family members of supervillains that his father fought, like whose side are they on? Are they like, oh, that guy was a jerk? Or are they like, that was, you know, my dad was definitely a dick. <laughs> it, well, it, it's, you, you'll, it, the, there's, a, there's a lot of exploration without giving too much away. There's a lot of exploration about, um, people and identity and about where they want to be and who they want to be. And, uh, you know, am I my father's child? Am I my own person? How do I pave my own way? Uh, especially in an environment, which is for the most part, a closed environment, meaning they're sort of trapped. Um, mm. They don't realize it at the start. And uh, because of that, it, re it requires people to develop trust and bonds. Um, even if every sense is telling you not to do that because of past experience or past events with those people you know i really love that concept because like you said not only does he have to find out who he is you know as you said not his you know uh, he is he his himself his own man or you know who his father was but i think as the same thing goes for the families of the villains that he's meeting as well and who are they then can you are they villains because their family their father's mother or whatever was a villain or are they you know their own people as well i think that's a wonderful idea for kids yeah and it's it, there's a lot of fun relationship stuff in there because Again, it's 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 people with powers. So you're not really sure if somebody has a power or not. You're not sure what's going on. Everything is really kept super quiet and undercover until until events start to happen in the, the town that force them to reveal themselves. So you would say this is a coming of age story for night. I, I would think so. It's it's a little bit of a. It's interesting because it's 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 part action adventure, but it's really more of a mystery and mm. a discovery. And um, I I fell in love with the town of Crucible, which is where everybody is. Because ultimately, the town becomes 
the the center point which people rally around mm. uh, and i think that's an interesting part of the story because there's a commonality there's a common shared interest at that point so that allows people to look past just the superficial um identity issues that they're faced with so if we're looking at the primary antagonist is it whoever's behind the witness protection program is it whoever is the within the family members is like where are we looking or is it all potentially everybody, everybody's a potential problem the interesting thing is that uh you got to remember his mother's there and he's there so they see people differently mother knows the past history of the father and and who his who his enemies were so she has one point of view he was introduced with a number of people prior to without that knowledge so he has a completely different point of view so not only is he at odds um with the various people uh, he meets in the town, but also with his own mother about what's the right way to handle themselves in this situation. So what is scarier for Nick? Is it being in this town full of strangers? Is it the fact that who he thought his mother was may not be, or that, you know, she could potentially be also lying. What, what for him is the scarier concept? The, the, I think the, the scariest contract is that is that he can't trust his mother. Uh, you know, and I think at the at the end of the day, he's there because of his trust of his mother. And then when he gets there, he realizes he might not be able to trust her, which means that he's completely alone in, in ways that he never anticipated. And he has no contact with the outside world. He has no contact with his past life. Um, and he really has to forge a new direction for himself. And that makes it um, creates that anxiety level um, about should I or shouldn't I trust anyone? Mm. And um, it's 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 the it's the theme that runs through most of the book, you know, and it's an important theme on, that we resolved to some point at the end. That kid's gonna have a hell of a complex <laughs> trust <Yeah>. complex. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, and that's and that's the thought. I mean, you know, if you think about it, you know, you, you see kids move, and it's like moving into a new high school at the last in senior year, you know, and where you used to be in a school where you know you knew everybody and everything was comfortable and you couldn't wait to graduate with them all of a sudden you're thrown into a brand new school where everybody has those relationships except you and you don't know how any way you can fit in and that was something that was playing into me um as a as a thematic but thrown against the the backdrop of superhero world now it's not just bad enough that he's in this new town that he's with his mother but if i read correctly also has these burgeoning powers that are popping up Absolutely. And that's and that's just the, the last piece of the puzzle is the fact of the matter is that uh, he has these powers developing and he doesn't even know who to talk to them about. He doesn't know how to who to share with. He doesn't know how to face them. Uh, he doesn't know what's happening to him. And he's afraid of everyone um, because he's afraid if he reveals this, um, it might put him at a much more vulnerable state. So there's a lot of that going on, too. So it just adds to that anxiety level that's constantly building throughout the book uh, for the lead. Now, are you able to share what those powers are, and are they the same ones that his father has? Oh no, no, it's 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 his power. His father was more um, invulnerable, strong. You know, you know, he had that very that that Superman complex. He's dealing with um, powers, uh, flammability, uh, as I like to call it. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now, do because these other members are family members of supervillains, are they also potentially superpowered, or no? Most of them. Okay. Some of them. <laughs> so let's let's see if you can answer this. The witness protection program. Do they know that he has powers, or is there an? Is there a, and it's, it's the crux of the story, and 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 the. Without giving too much away, uh, one of the reasons why they're in the city, they're in, the town they're in. All right. Very cool. Um, is this something that you're looking at as a series of books, or is this a one shot? 
It's it's a great question because I, I have ideas on how to take this for a couple more volumes going forward. That goes without saying because that's just that's just part of my nature. Once you get to establish these characters, you really want to put them through the ringer, and then you want to find new ways to put them a ringer and and bring new situations in. So I have an idea for a second book. I want to see how the first one does. To be honest with you, um, you know, I, it's it's interesting to me. Um, I love feedback. I love that conversation. So I want to see the reaction to the material, and hopefully, if it's positive. Then yeah, we'll go with the, the the second book. But you know, you want to make sure you're building something uh, for an audience, not just for yourself. Is it difficult to to when you because we're thinking about writing it? I mean, you you obviously have a whole lot of doors open to you. As you said, you had potentially Netflix. You had this other potential film. Is that something else you're thinking about as you're writing? Like, how would this look on screen? Are you thinking about it in terms of not a really? Picture? No, I got, I'm. I'm... <laughs> Because I'm new to the, the prose business, I'm more worried about how the, how it reads on paper. Um, because we can't, you know, once you lose sight of your medium, and I say this in even comics, once you lose sight of your medium, then I think you weaken your product. If you start to write a book or a, a comic for a movie or television, um, those are different mediums. They work in a different way. They're paced differently. They think differently. They act differently. Um, you just have to work to the strength of your product. And then hopefully... If you get enough support and excitement for it, then you can look at what the core ideas are and then adapt it moving out. But me, I, I just want to make the book work. I'm just trying to sell it. I'm, I want to sell that book. I want to make sure that we succeed as a novel because that's all that really matters to me at the moment. You know? So will be available everywhere books are sold, like Barnes & Noble will have it everywhere? I, I, Absolutely. Yeah, it's in Barnes & Noble. Uh, Amazon.com is the best place to get it right now because it's on pre-order there. Uh, I understand some of the comic shops that picked it up. I was in Midtown yeah. Comics. Uh, I know that they're going to have it. So there's a couple of stores that have it along the way. Um, you know, it's as any of these things. It's a small independent publisher with Ruth Simon and Schuster. Um, we do get some placement, but you know, you still have to look for it. But I'm hoping people find it. You know, yeah, that's that's where I saw it as well. It was uh, mycomicshop.com, which I'm pretty sure is where I saw art by uh, Moranville. I'll check it to make sure. But I'm pretty sure it was there. I was like, that's, see, yeah. if he, it's a graphic novel. It's sold by comic book store. Maybe I'm understanding it correctly. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's definitely incorrect there. So yeah, so yeah, no, it's a it's definitely a it's definitely a prose novel, and uh, <laughs> Anthony is definitely not an artist. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. And it's, it's, it, when it came out uh, yesterday. Or today, correct? Actually, it was today. Oh, right? Actually, it's a, it's out today in the bookstores, comic book stores, and it'll be out in the mass market on Tuesday. Very cool. Um, do you have a few minutes to talk about Frank Miller Presents, or you got to go? Nope, got more than happy. All right, fantastic. So you're also the publisher from Frank Miller Presents. So how do you get involved with it, and what is the publishing vision for Frank Miller Presents? Um, I got involved in it because during the again going back to the pandemic, I was stayed in touch with Frank. We were chatting. Uh, he was talking about a project he wanted to get me involved in. And I said, uh, I'm interested in working with them, but it would only be as if we published ourselves. Because I said, it was something neither one of us had did before. It's an interesting change of pace. It was definitely stretching out skill sets beyond where I am right now. Um, and it was exciting to me, and uh, which was great. So Frank was able to reacquire the rights to Ronin so he could do book two. We needed a book that was recognizable. Uh, for our fan base, but we're more interested in creating new ideas, new concepts, working with new talent, and really trying to push what we're trying to be in the most diversified way possible, meaning that it's not just about superheroes. We have a science fiction book over here, science fiction anime book with Ronin. I have a superhero book style book, which is probably the only one we'll do, which is Ancient Enemies, the book that I'm doing. And then Frank is also doing Pandora, which is a young adult themed book with Emmett Kuber and Anthony Marinville, not on art. 
but we have three different styles of books and we're looking at more things even later on in a second wave of titles that we're building right now frank's looking at doing sin city as a western doing the origin of based in city so we're going to constantly push themes and ideas we're never going to try to overproduce we're never really going to try to compete for market share we're never going to try to be a big company we just want to create things that we like and enjoy and everything that we're proud of and that's the main goal here is just to be able to focus on the books in a way that you feel confident that it's 100% the vision that you wanted this book to be. And if anything works, it works because of you. If everything fails, it's totally on you. And it's a good way to be because that way you feel that sense of ownership to product um, in a way that I haven't felt on, on many things over the years, you know? Well, when you, when you think about which book to be published by Frank Miller Presents, that's that's a hell of a um a stat you know a, a hill to put up Frank Miller you're you're a part of Frank Miller's book how are you thinking like which books are equal to a Frank Miller <laughs> published book it's, it, you know what we listen we talk about all sorts of crazy stuff all the time you know and we have some crazy ideas and it has nothing to do about putting it up on a pedestal it's about what excites us the most um you know and I mean I'm doing a book um with the the Me TV horror host Svanguli not something you'd expect from Frank Miller presents. <laughs> but it's a book that I really enjoy and the people I like, and it's something that's fun to do. Um, and that's kind of what we're about right now. We're doing what we like. We're following the passion uh, behind the projects that we're putting forward. And, uh, and I think hopefully it'll show in the work. Um, nothing's being done uh, to lock a corner of the market up. Uh, we're not overproducing covers like everyone else. You know, we only have two covers on every book. That's about it. Um, we're not in that, we're not in that business either. And we're only doing two covers because we felt guilty. We were only doing one. They, they guilt you into the comic business that you only have one cover now. So we put two on it just to shut everybody up. Um, but, uh, but, but the, rea but the reality is we're doing it and we want people to be reading these books. We want people to be enjoying these books. That's what this is about. We, we can't, we, we, you know, what? if we sit there, we play the game that everybody else is going to do, we lose. Um, so we got to play what makes the most sense to us in a way that we feel best about the work that we're creating. And I want to thank you for only doing two covers. I'm not going to name names, but scrolling through um, like my comic shop and it's like, I think one I had like 25 covers. I had every level of the alphabet. I was like, Jesus Christ. I, th I yeah. think you're good at three. I think you're fine at three. <laughs> yeah. you know, see, when, the, when the number of covers is greater than the pages of interior art in the book, you know you made a mistake somewhere. Yes. You know? <laughs> I, I agree. It's, just, it's a very easy rule to follow. <laughs> yeah, like I, said, I don't want to call anyone out, but I'm just saying by looking at my comic shop's list, a few less would be very helpful just to get, I'm like scrolling, scrolling like, God damn it, just get to the next comic. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I actually have no idea about that. And I was never the kid that collected variant covers. So um you know unfortunately that that sticks with me it stuck with me at dc i was very at variant cover adverse there i understood that it was part of the business i tried to convince myself it was really promotional than just monetary now it's strictly monetary it's yeah. the sales have dropped to the point that people have to oversell to the same person now rather than trying to find new people and i'd rather sell one book to 10 people than 10 books to one person you know uh -huh. And uh, and listen, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But at the end of the day, we stay true to what we believe is the best thing for comics. I agree 100%. And if I read correctly, you're also a co-writer with Kevin Fanhoof, friend of the show. If I remember on a book called Ginny, is that pronouncing it correctly? It's the Genie, yeah. It's, the Genie. Yeah, Kevin, yeah, actually, the Genie is one of the characters in my book, Ancient Enemies, which is my big series. And what I've done is four specials um, that are tied to the Ancient Enemies books. And Kevin, I've known for a long time. Um, I needed some help with my schedule. He was gracious enough to step in and give me a hand on that book. 
uh, which was good. And and now we're on to the next ones after that. But uh, yeah, they, you know, Ancient Enemies is, is my superhero book also, um, you know, because that's where I gravitate to. That's what I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do work other themes into it that I feel just make it more than just a superhero comic. Now, when you write a, a book like the Gene, are you thinking of it as a unified universe or he's going to get his own oh, yeah, going? Yeah. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of stuff that appears in that Genie one shot that play into the Ancient Enemies miniseries later on. So uh, I, 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 every one of the one shots that we're creating that's focused on the individual characters, because we have four primary characters in my story. One's the Genie, uh, is a team called the Greater Good. Uh, another character called the Wraith, and it's actually the Wraith and Son, which is a a mother and son superhero team. Uh, and then also uh, the last one is the first responder, um, which is a, a character who was transformed in the alien crash that affected all of uh, Eastern Seaboard. And uh, there's a lot of stories that take place with these guys, but in each of the one shots tied very much so to the main series and actually feed to the feed up to the big finale of the story that takes place, you know, in issue six. So we're talking spinoffs then to their own ongoing. Yes. Yeah, we'll see. Well, again, it, it's the same thing I was going to say about hide or seek. Um, we'll see how it works. You know, I, I, you know, again, I'm not just doing it for myself. I'm doing it because I'm doing books that I enjoy, but I'm just not going to make them for myself. I want to make sure there's an audience out there. I'm interested in the one shots to see if there are people, uh, any one of those characters seem to break out of the rest and we'll play it by ear. But um, the good part is it's, it's all feeding a big storyline. Ancient Enemies is a bi-monthly series. It means every other month. So in the in-between months, I drop these one shots. So it feels like you get a monthly experience with, uh, with the, the whole concept. Now, if I, um, Ancient Enemies is based on an allegory about class warfare and, and corruption. Am I correct on that? Absolutely correct, yes. So how does Ginny expand on those concepts and the ideology of that world? Well, it's first of all, it, the, 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 it's not the MacGuffin, but the, this lead story is about two alien races that have beaten themselves into near extinction. And the only way, instead of stopping the fight, they decide they're going to go and pick one champion on, inside, on each side to choose the winner of this galactic war. Um, of course, both sides cheat. The aliens crash on Earth creates massive destruction and devastation, and then new cities arise out of it. And from those two new cities are the cities of Citadel and Americana. Americana is the gleaming example of what the future of mankind can be, built off of the alien technology and the perfect city for the perfect, you know, for everything what we want to be and aspire to. And Citadel is the city where they basically, all the workers live, all the, all the displaced people from the, from the, from the giant crash that killed so many. And basically it's, it's Citadel's, it's Americana success is based on Citadel being there to support it and with nothing given in return. Mm. And it's part of the class war. If you look at history about great civilizations and things like that, it's always built on the backs of someone else. Mm. And in this case, we played out between the two cities and there's, there's tensions that are brewing. And then when you throw these two aliens into a mix, the cities unite behind certain characters and it almost they become the exemplification, not just of this galactic war, but this class war that's taking place on Earth. So when you're when you're saying um, talking about Americana as being this perfect world, this perfect city, is it their perception of the city or is it understood that they are perfect? And how 
can there be perfection? It's this part of the civilization. These who live in the Citadel cannot be part of it. Oh yeah, no, it's 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 the arrogance of Americana that calls it the perfect place. Okay, um, you know they consider themselves perfect. Nobody else does, and and we start to explore away from that. You find out there there's tracking on every single person inside that city. There there there's constant surveillance. They're constantly checking on people. The perfection is maintained by maintaining an order and eliminating people who step away from it. Um, and that's why there's you see these people there. They bring people in to use them. They, they, they perform their services skills. If there's no place for them within the city, they export them out of the city until they need somebody again. So they make sure the city is always clean with all the best people and just bring people in when necessary to service them and to help them. And ultimately, that's what creates a lot of the, the friction of it all. It's just something such a um, it's such a fascinating concept. I, I really like how it, it's reached for something deeper and a lot more um, in, intelligent than a lot of comic books could be. Well, here's the thing. The audience is different these days. And, you know, the days of the hero versus villain, good versus evil are a lot. Um, you know, it's a little harder to tell that story with with a level of clarity anymore. I mean, if you look at themes within TV and film and in, in media today and pop culture today, there are two recurring themes. It's good people doing really bad things all the time. So you have these people who are perceived to be good and they're constantly doing things that just are horrendous and evil and you can't understand how they slip down this hole so deep. And then on the reverse side, you see people who are horrifically evil being justified in their actions and almost sympathetic. Mm. And that means we've blurred this line between good and evil and there's sort of wish-washing in the middle um, and there's nobody that's clearly standing above and beyond on the side of good or nobody on the side of evil anymore. Um, and it's a fascinating topic to describe because as I say, I, I say it all this time, a lot of people think they're doing the right thing. That's why I have a team called the greater good. They think they're doing the greater good. They see what the outcome could be for the betterment of mankind. They just don't realize the pain and suffering that they cause to achieve that goal. And whether or not at the end of the day, it's justified about mm. all the people that they hurt along the way to achieve the good, you know? And I always go back to the pyramids. Pyramids are beautiful. People are enjoying them to this, this day. The amounts of thousands, tens of thousands of people that died in the making of those things. Mm. It's never really brushed over. We sit there and enjoy this monument, but not really realizing the suffering that went along with it. And you realize throughout history, that tale is repeated time and time and time and time and time again. So it's just another telling of that story just in, in this environment. Is, is it the benefit of being your own publisher that, that allows you to have the time to develop the story? Do you think the story could have existed under another publishing house who would be like, let's do this or that? It, it's hard to say. You know, I mean, the, when you go to another publishing house, they might ask for other things. Yo, I need a clear villain. You know, I need, I need a Dr. Doom. I need this. I need that. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't have it. I, as a matter of fact, when I'm writing my book, I have no villain in mind, but they're doing horrible things. <laughs> I mean, they're doing, and I, then I read them like, wow, they're doing horrible things. <laughs> but, and I said, I shouldn't get that much joy writing it, but I'm doing it. <laughs> Live vicariously through your villains. Always the way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and, and that's, and that's the fun part about it because every one of them, if they do something bad, I could justify the reason why they did it. And that's what's important to me. And there's a couple of people who are outside of that realm. But they go along with it, which is probably just as bad as doing it in its own way, you know? So what's next for you going forward? Interesting question. I mean, right now it's it's Ancient Enemies. I've got a couple other books, ideas that we're floating by um, to see how we do as probably for the next wave of books. Um, 
with with Frank Miller presents. And then I and then my, my deal with my publisher is a two book deal. So it's a question of whether or not to do the sequel to Hard to Seek. But I have a second idea that I, I kind of get excited about because I also chase the bright shiny pennies. You know, so, <laughs> so I have another idea that I'm really ex super excited about, and we'll have pictures. Not by Anthony Marinville, but uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but I do have pictures, uh, and uh, so there's this this stuff there. Um, you know, I, I'm at that point in in a career where I'm just doing what I, I like to do at the moment, and then um, right now I'm probably working harder than I wanted to, um, but I am enjoying it. Um, but there's a point there where you want to take a little bit of a break, enjoy yourself, and just slow down. and And, and the main goal for me, and this, this is the most important one, I, you know, when you divide your attention so much which unfortunately was my case at jobs at dc and such um you you never really feel like you have a full grasp of a product and more importantly you can always feel it could be a little bit better uh if you just gave it a little more time and energy that you didn't have available mm -hmm. here i'm just really focused on books that i have time and energy to do i mean and i think that's most important to me than anything else is that everything i'm doing when it gets out the door it's exactly what i want it to be um, and that's probably the best feeling for everything that's going on at this moment, because, um, the, there's nothing wrong with compromise, but at this point, I'm not making any compromises. I feel that, that impact anything that I do negatively, you know? So, um, so that, that's a good thing. So, um, and you know, it's, it's that infamous, oh, now I'm going to date myself. I'm going to sound old for a second. So forgive me. It's that, what's that commercial, the wine commercial, don't serve wine before it's time. You know, you don't want to break down minutes in our books before it's time. We get, I want to make sure we have the time to get everything done properly because there's no urgency for me to get things out at a very particular time. I have it on a schedule, but the reality is if it's not ready, we'll hold it back for a week or so just to get it right, which is something that I was not afforded that opportunity at DC. You know, so we can, we have a little more flexibility here. Well, I hope Hide or Seek does fantastic so you can do that sequel. I want to thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show. You've been absolutely awesome. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, like I said, hold up the book. There you go. That's the cover, man. <laughs> Very cool. Kenneth Rockford. Remember that? Never <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm going to find out where I found it. Have a fantastic night, sir. Yeah, please do. Send me that email. I want to get it corrected for sure. Okay. Thank you, man. Oh.